listening to the Energy Policy Podcast, a production of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Tom Plant. I'm your co-host, Jeff Ling. And this month, we're talking about renewable energy. We talked a little bit about RPS policies uh, in the last episode. And um, it, now we want to kind of go beyond RPSs and talk a little bit about some of the other uh, market driving mechanisms that uh, renewables uh, can be advanced with. But before we do that, I do want to um, let folks know that the Center uh, for the New Energy Economy has released uh, a new trends analysis paper uh, in April, the Summary of State Renewable Portfolio Standard Legislation in 2015, kind of a snapshot of where RPS legislation is throughout the country. Uh, and uh, as of you know this April date. And one of the things that we find, and we've done this in the last couple of years, and one of the things we find this year is that there were 26 bills introduced to roll back RPSs, 29 bills introduced to increase RPSs, and 32 bills to modify RPSs. Yeah, and that's, that's different, Tom, from the last three years. As you mentioned, this is an annual update that we publish and you can access it off of aeltracker.org and go to trends and analysis papers. And I think what you're referring to is the relatively even split. So a third, a third, a third of rollback, modify, or increase legislation. What we've seen in the past two years is something different where the modification legislation is over half of the pie chart and then the rest is split with rollback and increases. So so what, is, what does that mean? And we spent some time trying to figure out what it is that that means, and we looked actually at um, the target dates, the the, uh, the the percentage of renewables by X date in, for a number of states. There are actually eight states that hit their target years in 2015, and we tried to figure out is there a correlation here between this percentage uptick in increased legislation relative to states that are hitting their targets. Yeah, and what we found was there's really not a correlation. There's no correlation there, <laughs> um, which is nice slightly, idea. Which was not slightly so disappointing, but um, <laughs> but uh, I think was uh, nonetheless a, a productive exercise. Um, and as usual, we we uh, document uh, various pieces of legislation in detail. So check out that paper if you're interested. But it does it does lead to a question of are we Tom and, and you mentioned this. Are we sort of reaching a point where we're going maybe beyond the RPS in the U.S.? Are we moving from uh, a mandate-driven policy to more of an enabling consumer choice type of policy? Market-driven market market po- market yeah. policy. Exactly. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's, a great, it's a great thing to look at because, uh, you know, first of all, I would say the RPSs have been tremendously successful and, and really have jump-started uh, the renewable industry in the United States, we've seen the costs of renewables go down. We've seen the workforce uh, go up. We've seen a tremendous amount of infrastructure get built, both mm-hmm. from the perspective of generation infrastructure, but also training and, and uh, manufacturing and all this kind of things that go to support an industry have really come out of this uh, mandate environment and uh, and now we're getting to the point where renewables are quite competitive mm-hmm. in terms of price. Uh, utilities are much more familiar with them, so they're more comfortable in terms of integration, what they can and what they can't do, what kinds of um, you know uh, forecasting uh, mechanisms they need to have in place, those kinds of things. And so they're, they're, there's a lot more of a comfort level with, um, with renewables that, there, that wasn't really there 10, 15 years ago. 
Um, I think that's largely because of that, um, that RPS environment. But now, is that policy necessarily, um, number one, the, the best thing for the industry moving forward? Number two, is, is it uh, serving as more of a ceiling than a, than a floor? Is it, is it actually becoming a constraining uh, element to the expansion of renewable energy? So that's interesting. You're asking whether, say, another 5% incremental increase from, say, a 20% RPS by 2020 is going to that extra uh, 5% sort of politically and all that needs to happen to get there is that actually acting more as a ceiling uh, than potentially a market enabler? And I think that's a, a really fascinating question. You know, the, we saw here in Colorado, our hometown utility, Excel Energy, in 2013, made a request to the Public Utilities Commission to purchase 450 megawatts of renewables, solar and wind, based on cost alone. And, uh, and so if it's not for compliance with a state mandate, if it's not a compliance checkbox, but a least cost resource, yeah, has the RPS sort of uh, played its played its part, and and what should and should policymakers likewise be looking for these market based strategies that really allow greater levels of consumer choice? Yeah, and you know one of the terms that you hear in the utility uh, when, you, when you deal with utilities or the utility industry quite a bit is this idea of a monopsony, right. which is one buyer. So you have one buyer, which is the utility. We often we think of the utility as a monopoly or one seller, but they're also one buyer. So if you've got a lot of people that are producing or, mm -hmm. or bidding to produce renewable energy out there, they have that one entity uh, into which they can sell their product. And now that the market has evolved to the point where uh, it's, it's a mature market, um, would they benefit from expanding that from a monopsony environment and opening up a variety of other potential buyers of the product and really try and expand that market in a different way? So those are some of the policies I think we want to talk about uh, here today. Um, one of the things that has uh, spread around the country, I think uh, it's in eight states now, uh, is this idea of shared renewables. So this is fractional ownership of, of um, centralized renewable generation. Yeah, this is, you know, the shared economy comes to renewables, right? Yeah. This, is the, this is the Airbnb, this is the uh, Zipcar <laughs> of renewables, right? Where uh, is there a way for customers that maybe rent or don't have solar access or uh, move a lot or maybe just like the idea of investing in part of a larger system um, uh, can can participate and and the answer to that question up until sort of this shared renewables uh, kind of breakthrough was was really no uh, and and that left uh, a lot of the consumer market maybe as much as half or more um, without access to any direct way to participate in uh, purchase, purchasing more of their energy from renewables but in those eight states Tom uh, Washington, Colorado, uh, California, Minnesota, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Massachusetts, uh, there is enabling uh, shared renewables or sometimes referred to as community solar or sometimes referred to as community solar gardens uh, enabling legislation. It actually started here in Colorado. That's right. And there's a lot of uh, components to this. Obviously, there's the the component that allows people to own fractional ownership of a, of a larger system. Mm 
there's also usually some sort of companion that enables virtual net metering. So allowing a customer to get credited for the power that's generated from this offsite uh, um, generator in which they own fractional ownership um, to get credited as if it were being net metered on their on their home, basically the same kind of thing. So another enabling policy would be third party uh, allowing third party ownership, right? right? The ability for a third party, a pick a company, a Solar City or someone uh, like that, Sunrun, to Sunrun, Sunjevity, exactly, to to own a system. Uh, and to sell that electricity uh, via a lease or a lease purchase or, or some contractual arrangement to a consumer without being regulated as a utility company. Right, and so I think that that's the, that's the key component there uh, in terms of legislation that most states need to, need to define is that you won't be regulated as a utility that is you know, a regulated utility in front of the Public Utilities Commission, et cetera, if you're providing this customer-sided uh, generation, usually solar in, in most cases at, at this point. You know what's really interesting, I think, is the uptick of third-party solar and how quick that quickly that's happened. Um, you know, Colorado, again, another example. In 2009, uh, enabling legislation was passed to allow third-party solar, so there was zero Right. Third-party solar ownership in 2009. Probably even by the end of 2009, there was still very, very little. Yeah. So in a period of five years or less, Colorado and California and Arizona, New York, New Jersey, all these states have something on the order of 70 to 80 percent of the systems that are being installed, the, the distributed solar systems, owned by third parties. Now that's happened in a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a, it's an enormous component of the market share. And you know, there's different models for how these companies operate. Some of them are very vertical, like Solar City, for example. Uh, they have their own uh, installers. They have their own, uh, you know, uh, um, employment base that they right. that they manage. And then others like Sunrun, they contract with, with uh, the local the local installers that that are around. So um, it can help to really boost the uh, the local economy. Um, and, but it, in terms of, and this gets back to something else that we've talked about in the past, financing. You right. know. What this really comes down to is removing barriers to solar ownership. If you tell somebody they need to come up with fifteen thousand dollars, you know they probably you know a lot of people just can't buy a solar system. If you say, hey, you don't have to pay anything, um, but you'll pay this amount per month, then people can afford it. You know, it's kind of like buying a car. You rarely walk or anything else, right? Anything you can almost finance anything. (laughs) Exactly. So it's just built-in financing, really, is what it is, and 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 it's it's turned out that that's been incredibly popular. And that's one of the reasons, you know, that we start this conversation about, you know, is there an opportunity to move towards these market mechanisms? Because clearly we're getting signals that people want this kind of power. And that means that there is a market there. So are we, are we artificially sort of subduing that market by, by not allowing these kinds of, um, these kinds of engagements. You know, one of the others is uh, community choice aggregation. And all mm-hmm. this really means is that a community can join together um, and uh, contract through a PPA or um, some other arrangement 
to, uh, to have a certain amount of their power generated from a, uh, a wind farm or a solar farm or whatever it might be, and that that power then gets integrated into the grid that's serving them. But they're allowed to use that aggregated purchasing power to, to uh, drive that development. Um, this is something that's been you know, successful in California. We also yeah, right Marin, right that's Marin right. County. Were they one of the first, or maybe maybe they were? They the may first. have been the first. Yeah, and you know the the other place where we saw this kind of thing really sort of shake up the renewable market was in Illinois. Sure. Um, so uh, a number of municipalities had done this in Illinois, but then Chicago. Uh, <laughs> pass legislation that suddenly changes your your uh, you're big enough your to, market to, yeah. to change the direction of a state exactly sure. yeah. so you know and allowing again getting to that monopsony issue now all of a sudden you've got actual communities that are able to act as buyers as opposed to just a utility right. so we talked about the consumer uh, you just mentioned communities I think it's also worth mentioning mentioning large uh, retail customers. Yeah. You know, what happens where you have a, a big box store company or a large manufacturer that has corporate goals? Mm-hmm. They have company and corporate goals for sustainability, for efficiency and renewables that exceed the percentage of renewable generation that they will get from their serving utility in whichever states they may be in. And is there a way for those customers to basically combine their buying power, in this case, to install more on-site renewables, to purchase more renewables through a blend, uh, so that they can hit their corporate goals that, in some cases, may exceed the states in which they're which they're located. And there's there's huge interest in this. I would say it's probably lagging behind the other two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how do you how do we enable these corporations that buy an awful lot of electricity? Right. Right to hit their corporate goals and to do so in a way that um, that works within the regulated utility environment that doesn't uh, sort of threaten the utility's ability to serve those customers, but allows them to band together to exceed maybe uh, what they might have otherwise been able to achieve with standard utility programs. Right, standard utility programs and also their rooftops. Right, right. so exactly. you've got the the whole aspect that might be rooftop net metered. Power, um, and then you've got looking beyond that uh, that demand to, you know, buying a share of a of a wind farm or you know something like that, where it's much larger scale uh, generation and a larger scale investment that exactly. again gets to that monopsony issue. Can you can you have a new customer? So that's a few of the policies that we see around the country that are starting to change that dynamic. Um, and it's, I think it's worth a, a conversation uh, as we look at, um, you know, California up, talking about upping their RPS to 50%. We see um, Vermont with legislation to establish a 75% goal by uh, 2032. Right. We've got most of our RPSs expiring in 2020. Or at least hitting their target dates. Right? Or hitting yeah. The, yeah, hitting their target dates in 2020. Uh, as you said, eight are uh, hitting their date in 2015. Right. Um, so this is actually a it's conversation. Critical time, right? Yeah, the next right. five years. Yeah, exactly. And so coming up with these sort of alternative solutions might be something uh, good for the market-based alternative solutions. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that means not only getting rid of maybe a mandate, but in conjunction with that, mm-hmm. establishing the market conditions that will allow for competition, which we don't currently have right now. 
So you've been listening to the Energy Policy Podcast, uh, production of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. Uh, I'm your host, Tom Plant. I'm your co-host, Jeff Ling. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks.